I want to speak plainly this evening, as plainly as I possibly can. We live in a day where religion and religious belief is looked upon as a matter of preference, taste, opinion. People say things like, well, all religions are fundamentally the same. They're just superficially different. So choose whichever one works best for you. And along the way, the question of truth is completely ignored, avoided. And I believe this is a huge mistake. Belief is irresponsible, if not completely empty, if it is disconnected from truth. And we say things like, well, truth is subjective. Something may be true for you and not true for me. Something may be true for me, it's not true for you. Truth is based on what you feel about something. And we say things like that, but we don't really believe that. I mean, who in this room, for example, wants to go to your bank this week and to say to the teller, I would like to withdraw money from my account and hear your teller say back to you, well, I don't feel like you have money in your account. Your inevitable response would be, I don't care how you feel. (laughs) I know I have money in my account and I would like to withdraw that money. The last thing you want your teller at that point to say to you is, well, sir, with all due respect, that may be true for you, but it is not true for me. Obviously, especially in our economic situation at this point, the last thing we want is banks doling out money based on how they feel on that particular day. This is one of thousands of examples the details of our lives where we operate based on truth. So why? Why in the world, when it comes to the most important questions in life, grand eternal questions, would we throw truth out the window and make this a matter of preference as if it's a, a, like taste in ice cream? It's that important. I want to submit to you that the core of belief is truth and even submit that one question determines much of our lives for all of eternity. And that ultimate question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? Now, I'm not talking resuscitation here. I'm not talking reincarnation. I'm talking three days dead, then come back to life and walk out of a tomb. Did Jesus do that? And I'm convinced that the answer to that question is not a matter of preference or taste or opinion. It's a yes or no. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes, it's a matter of truth. And the answer to that question has huge ramifications for all of our lives in this room. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then the reality is we are wasting our time this evening. Completely wasting it. We are celebrating a lie, no matter how 
good the music sounds or how much we enjoy it, it's celebrating a lie. We're deceived. We are fools. 1 Corinthians 15, the Bible even says that if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then Christians are to be pitied among men. Feel sorry for Christians if the resurrection is not true. The Bible says. However, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then that has eternal implications for every single life in this room. So, did it happen? There's a lot of people who think at this point, with the question, did Jesus rise from the dead, the burden of proof is on the Christian. If if you're going to be a Christian, you need to be able to prove that Jesus rose from the dead. And I think there's a grain of truth to that. Yes, Christians need to know why they believe what they believe and be able to offer a defense for why they believe in the resurrection of Jesus. At the same time, I don't think the burden of proof is just on the Christian. I think there's a burden of proof here on the non-Christian as well. Because the reality is, even the most secular of historical scholars would say that about 2,000 years ago, there was something that happened which brought about almost overnight the creation of an entire new religious community, an entire new religious movement of people who were claiming that Jesus had risen from the grave. A whole group of people, hundreds, very soon thousands of people making this claim, some even claiming to have seen him, to the point where 2,000 years later, some would estimate almost a third of the world identifies himself as Christian. So what happened? If not resurrection, what happened at that point to cause this massive shift in the introduction of the church into history? And so what I want us to do is I want us to take a brief survey of, of different explanations that have been given for what happened at that point. And I want us to ask the question, which of these explanations is most plausible? And I use that term very intentionally plausible because the reality is we can't, we can't look at anything, guarantee anything that's happened in history with 100% certainty. Even take, for example, the, what we would call fact that George Washington was first president of the United States. We can't guarantee with 100% certainty that that is the case. We can't guarantee that there weren't fabricated documents and uh, a legend made up to encourage citizens of a new country. Now, we know pretty certain that this is actual truth, but we can't guarantee with 100% certainty. One author said, we can't know with 100% certainty that all of us were not created five minutes ago, complete with built-in memories and food in our stomachs. Think about that. That'll give you a headache. (laughs) The reality is, we can't guarantee anything in the past with 100% certainty. So, Which of these is most plausible? Think about what people have said throughout history about what happened to cause this major new religious movement of people claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. Well, some have said, and you've got this in those notes there, possible explanations. Jesus didn't die on the cross. Jesus didn't even die on the cross. And this this comes about in different forms. Muslims, for example, say that Jesus didn't even go to the cross. Muhammad teaches in the Quran that A substitute went. Somebody that looked like Jesus went to the cross. It wasn't actually Jesus on the cross. Now again, just for sake of discussion here, this is where we come back to. This is a point at which two dominant religions in the world 
diverge. And it's not at a point of opinion or preference or ideology. It's a point of truth. Either Jesus did die on the cross or he didn't die on the cross. If he didn't die on the cross, all Christianity is false. It's a lie. If he did die on the cross, then what the Quran is teaching is a lie. This is not a matter of preference. It's a matter of truth, one or the other. Muhammad made this claim, 6th, 7th century. Thankfully, we've got a lot of people who are much closer to this historical situation, Christian and non-Christian alike, who give testimony that it was Jesus who was on that cross. Now, some have said that it's called the swoon theory, that Jesus went to the cross, but he didn't die there. He was just hurt really, 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 really bad. And the way the theory goes is, Jesus was taken down from the cross prematurely. He had lost consciousness, but he was taken down from the cross before he died, wrapped in grave clothes, and then put in a tomb before he was even dead. Now, at this point, we are to assume then that Jesus went through six trials all through the middle of night, no sleep, ended up being brutally scourged had a crown of thorns thrust into his head, nails thrust into his feet and into his hands. He hung on a cross for hours, had a spear thrust into his side, was taken down, wrapped in grave clothes, put in a tomb, and had that, a stone rolled over that tomb with Roman guards standing out. So now we are to believe that Jesus, in the tomb, regained consciousness, rolled out of the tomb, hopped over to the stone, pushed it out of the way, hopped past Roman guards who were stationed there, and coolly went about his way. I'm going to go with not so plausible on this one. Second explanation, Jesus' tomb was not empty, sometimes called the wrong tomb theory. And the way this goes is that the women who went to the tomb on that first Easter Sunday morning were so struck with grief and shock over Jesus' death that they got their directions mixed up and went to the wrong tomb. And when they did not find a body there, they immediately assumed resurrection. And so they went and told everybody. And other people came and apparently ran and went to the wrong tomb as well. And apparently for the last 2,000 years, people have been traveling to the Holy Land and have been going to the wrong tomb. If we would just check next door, everything would be clarified. Now, obviously, this is a day when Jewish and Roman authorities both did not want a religious group claiming that their leader had been risen from the grave. It's why the guards were set up at that tomb to guard that tomb, but apparently, unfortunately, the guards themselves were at the wrong tomb. Third explanation. Well, that doesn't prove the resurrection of Jesus just because the tomb was empty. What if the disciples stole the body of Jesus? This is a conspiracy theory, so to speak, that the disciples stole the body of Jesus and claimed that he was alive. I would, I would point out two reasons why this is particularly unlikely. One, one it, would, it would require us to believe that this scared, timid group of Galilean disciples who were in many senses afraid to even admit they knew Jesus during the crucifixion period are now, are now powerful enough to outmaneuver highly trained and skilled Roman guards, get past them, get inside a tomb, get a body, and disappear. 
And second reason this would be unlikely is because the very idea of resurrection in this day was preposterous. There were a variety of would-be messiahs, so to speak, people who made outrageous claims. They were killed or would die. And none of those other religious groups would ever claim their their leader had risen from the grave because in Greco-Roman thought, not only was this an impossible idea in their worldview, it was an undesirable idea. The whole picture in Greco-Roman thought was death is liberation finally from the body. Last thing you want to do is return to the body. And then in Jewish thought, the idea of an individual resurrection back into a life and a world full of sickness, death, disease, and decay was unheard of. And so we would have to believe that literally overnight, not a matter of discussion, debate, not a matter of religious dialogue, but overnight, all of a sudden, all of these people started believing in resurrection from the dead all of a sudden started believing that somebody had risen from the grave, even though that was a preposterous idea to that point. Now, it's, it's interesting here, particularly with these last two. Jesus' tomb was not empty, and the disciples stole the body of Jesus. Those ideas alone have a little bit of validity, but when you add another truth to this picture, then it raises the bar. Because the reality is, and even, even secular scholars, secular historians, non-Christian historians would point to the fact that there were many people in that day after the supposed resurrection of Jesus who were claiming to have seen Jesus, claiming to have eaten with Jesus, talked with Jesus. And so, if you have an empty tomb, but nobody's seen Jesus alive, then you've got, a, you've got a, something weird going on, the body's not there, but you don't have resurrection conclusions at this point. Same way, if you have disciples who've stolen a body and are claiming that he's alive and nobody's seen him, then you've, you've probably got disciples who are fabricating a story. But when you've got, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says over 500 people who saw Jesus That's what's so interesting. Paul, when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he talks about if the resurrection's not true, then we're to be pitied among men, he says many of them are still alive. In other words, you can verify this whole picture. Go talk to them. There are people who have seen Jesus. They've seen him. You can verify it. That's when we get to the fourth explanation. Some would say, well, The disciples then were just delusional when they were claiming to have seen Jesus. The disciples, as well as scores of other people, delusional. The story goes, and probably the most common story, goes that they didn't have scientific knowledge like we have today. And as a result, they were very quick to resort to supernatural explanations. These were people who were sorrowful over Jesus' death and wanted to believe Jesus was still leading them and guiding them, maybe even had visions of him speaking to them, maybe even hallucinations. Some have even said the disciples themselves were talking about how Jesus was actually not physically alive, but spiritually alive. And the whole idea of a physical resurrection is something that the church crafted in the days to come, centuries to come. This takes us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It takes us back to the 
resurrection appearances of Jesus because over 500 people, this is not one person who saw something in the clouds that kind of looked like Jesus. This is hundreds of people who claim to have seen Jesus and he ate with them, he drank with them. Hallucinations do not eat and hallucinations do not drink. And Paul says, you go ask any of these people, they can verify this. What if I were to tell you that last week I got a call from Tiger Woods and in preparation for this weekend at the Masters, he was looking for a little help from me and asked me to play a little practice round with him just to help sharpen some of his skills for the weekend. And I had, I had a busy week. We had a lot going on this weekend, but I thought, you know, it's Tiger. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help the guy out. And so, so I went and I played a practice round with him and I, I helped him a little bit in improving his distance on his drive. And we were, we were one par three. I, I hit a hole in one. Like, he was impressed. He, he, he looked at me and he said, Dave, I wish you could play as my substitute on the course. And I said, man, I got things to do. That's, that's the only reason I'm not a professional golfer is I work on Sundays. Like this is, it's, I, I'm not able to help you out, bro. And unfortunately this weekend, he didn't, he didn't follow like the tips that I'd given him. I was very, very disappointed. Like, now, if I were to tell you that, if I were to tell you that, you could easily go to Tiger Woods and say, listen, number one, do you have any clue who David Platt is? And number two, do you have any knowledge about his golf game? And his response would immediately be, number one, I have no clue who David Platt is. Number two, I'm guessing he's probably a terrible golfer. And he would be exactly right on that. Verifiable. Go talk to them. And don't miss it. These are not just people who are claiming to have seen Jesus. These are people that are losing their lives because they're claiming to have seen Jesus. This is a day when it is costing them their families to make this claim. Before you know that you're about to go to a cross of your own for making this claim, you make sure this is not just a hallucination. Pascal said, I believe the witnesses, they get their throats cut. This was not in their best interest to promote a lie or a dream, a vision or hallucination. And T. Wright says the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have invented it. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. This leaves us with one possible explanation. Jesus died on the cross and actually rose from the grave. Now some would say at this point, well, that doesn't, that doesn't prove that this is a physical resurrection that actually happened. Well then, what actually happened? The burden of proof is on you because I can point, even outside of the biblical witness, to Christian and non-Christian scholars alike who would point us to facts, the crucifixion of Jesus, fact. They would point us to people who were claiming Jesus had risen from the dead because they had seen him, fact. People like Saul, Paul, James, who were the strongest critics of Christianity and upon seeing the resurrected Jesus immediately became the strongest advocates of Christianity in the history of Christianity. So the burden of proof is 
is on you. What is the most plausible explanation? Now think about it with me. If this is true then, if Jesus really actually rose from the dead, then the implications are startling. I am convinced this is the point at which Christianity stands or falls. This is the point. And that's not to minimize anything else in Christianity, and particularly the cross. This last Friday night, it's been six hours, I hope, seeing, looking at the significance of the cross. But the reality is the resurrection of Christ is the validation of everything that had gone before in the life of Christ, everything he had said and everything he had done. If he did not rise from the grave, then he is exposed to be a liar, and all of those things are undercut. This is the picture. If Jesus did not rise from the grave, then and we don't have to pay attention to anything he said. Maybe we can pick or choose a few things here that maybe make our lives a little better. But we don't have to pay attention to anything he said. However, if Jesus did rise from the grave, then we must pay attention to everything he said. Because there is no one else who can make that claim. No one else that has risen from the grave in that way. So think about the implications. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he is indeed Lord. Lord, a word, title that means absolute authority. Absolute authority. If Jesus rose from the dead, he is Lord. Think about it with me. Lord over life and death. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he has absolute authority over life and death. Listen to his words in John 10. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down an authority to take it back up again. Who determines when they will live? Who in this room decided one day, you know, I think I'd like to live? And so you persuaded your parents to make that a reality. No, that does not happen. In the same way, who in this room, once you or I die, once our hearts flatline, who in this room has the authority to say, I'm going to live again. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he has absolute authority over life and death itself. He is Lord over life and death. If Jesus rose from the dead, Lord over life and death, and he is Lord over sin and Satan. Death is the consequence of sin. The payment of sin is death. We die because of sin. Sin is the condition of our hearts that turns from God, against God, to ourselves. We choose our own way. We choose to spurn his authority. This is, this is how the Bible describes sin. Think about the authority of God as creator. He says to the oceans, you stop here. He says to the mountains, you go there. He says to the wind, you blow there. And the rain, you fall there. He says to all creation, do this. And all creation responds in immediate, in immediate obedience to him. He looks at us and we have the audacity to look back at him in the face and say no. 
No, you are not the authority in my life. I, I choose what is best, and I'm the authority in my life, and I'm the authority in my family. And we are, we are all in that condition. The reality is, though, if death is the payment for sin and he is Lord over death, then he is clearly Lord over sin. This is what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he talks about, go talk to the people, the resurrection is true. He says, concludes, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has absolute authority over life and death, sin and Satan, and and if Jesus rose from the dead, then he is Lord over you and me. Lord over you and me. He has absolute authority over your life and my life. This is the foundational confession of Christianity, and it is grounded in the resurrection. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. What does it mean for Jesus to be the absolute authority over your life and my life? It means, first, he reigns over us supremely. He is the sovereign ruler of our lives. Sovereign ruler over our lives. And this is true regardless of whether or not we believe it. Just as the grass outside is green, regardless of whether or not we believe it is green, so Jesus is Lord. We do not make him Lord. We do not decide that he's Lord. He is Lord. This is objective truth. If he rose from the grave, then he reigns over us supremely. Not only does he reign over us supremely, this means he loves us deeply. He loves us deeply. The resurrection begs the question, why did Jesus die in the first place? And the reality that Jesus himself taught is that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for many. And the picture is, now remember the payment for sin is death. Jesus himself had no sin and so had no need to die, no payment to pay for his own sin, and so did not deserve death. So why did he die? He died to pay the price for your sin and my sin, to pay the penalty due your sin and my sin. How do we know that is true? How do we know that's what the cross is all about? Because of the resurrection. Because he rose from the grave, this validates everything he had said. This validates the picture of God saying, yes, the payment has been covered. And this means he loves us deeply because though Though he had no sin in him, he took your sin and my sin, our sin upon himself, and he paid the price that we would not have to pay it. That is 
deep love. If Jesus rose from the dead, dead, he reigns over us supremely. He loves us deeply and he will judge us eternally. If Jesus rose from the dead, then we need to listen very closely to John chapter 5, verse 21, when Jesus says these words. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Follow this. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. The Father has entrusted judgment to the Son. Now this is very good news. This is good news because the one who will one day judge us for all of eternity has paid the price for our sin. So that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved from your sin. You will be saved from eternal judgment. You will be given eternal life. This is what Jesus talked about over and over and over again. That's good news, but it gets even better when we realize what this means for our lives now, not just in eternity, but now, because this is where the resurrection of Jesus reminds us this world is not all there is. This world is not all there is. So when we see and are struck by disease, when we look at poverty and starvation and AIDS epidemics and tsunamis and earthquakes and senseless shootings and wars, isn't there in every single one of us an innate, built-in longing and desire for ultimate justice? for ultimate meaning, for ultimate hope, something in each of us that cries out, this is not all there is. And the resurrection of Jesus from the grave tells us this is not all there is. Tim Keller, pastor up in Manhattan, heart of New York, said, I always say to my skeptical secular friends that even if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should want it to be true. Most of them care deeply about justice for the poor, alleviating hunger and disease, and caring for the environment. Yet many of them believe that the material world was caused by accident, and that the world and everything in it will eventually simply burn up. They find it discouraging that so few people care about justice without realizing that their own worldview undermines any motivation to make the world a better place. Why sacrifice for the needs of others if in the end nothing we do will make any difference? However, however, if the resurrection of Jesus happened, that means there's infinite hope and reason to pour ourselves out for the needs of the world. This is not the final picture. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad cancer does not have the last word? And Disease and starvation and tsunamis and earthquakes and senseless shootings and wars do not have the last word because Jesus Christ has the last word. And he has the last word in every single life in this room.
And if that is true, then all of a sudden the ultimate question becomes an extremely personal question that does confront each one of us. And that question spring from Romans 10.9 is twofold. First part, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. This is where the message of Christianity, don't miss this, is radically different than every other religious system in the world. Because here we do not find a list of things to do and boxes to check off and activities to perform. We find truth to be believed and trusted. So do you believe? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? If your answer to that question would be no, No, I do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Then the burden of proof is on you. Challenge you. What is the more plausible explanation? And I challenge you to consider this is too important to just pass over and move on like it's not a big deal. I would challenge you to seek out and to search to study, to seriously investigate. Are there more plausible explanations? Again, this is where Christianity stands or falls. I would encourage you to seek that out. I would encourage you to be somewhat careful on the road, though, because you may find yourself on a road that many have gone before you on. People like Josh McDowell or Lee Strobel who have set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus and have ended up believing in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you would answer yes to that question, yes, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then I want to remind you that this is half of Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Now, we do not see in Romans 10, 9, Believe plus do these things. Instead, we see a clear understanding of what belief involves. Because belief is more than simple intellectual assent to a truth. We need to hear this. We live in church-saturated Birmingham, Alabama, where people all across the city have gathered together in buildings like this and have an intellectual belief in Jesus or maybe even Jesus' resurrection from the dead, but are not saved from their sins. Did you catch that? Scores maybe even of professing Christians in this room or in buildings like this all across our city today who would say yes to that first question but are not saved from their sins. You say, how is that possible? To borrow language from James chapter 2, even the devil himself believes in the resurrection of Jesus.
If the devil himself were here tonight and I were to have a conversation with him and I were to ask him, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? He would say, absolutely, yes. Do you believe Jesus is the son of God? Absolutely, yes. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave? Yes. Do you believe he is the only way to be saved? Yes. Are you willing to commit your life to living a good moral life and being involved in church, maybe even leading in church? Yes. This is how scores of people understand Christianity, and it is nothing more than the devil himself believes. That is not the picture of Christianity in Scripture. The point at which that conversation takes a radical turn is when I ask the devil himself, do you repent? Do you turn from your sin and turn to Christ as Lord of your life? No. No. And so, I would ask every single person in this room who says, yes, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Take that one step further to understand what the Bible is talking about here when it comes to belief. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus and do you surrender to the Lordship of Jesus? Do you confess that He has absolute authority in and over your life? Do you confess his lordship? Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Not that there's magic and words, but that there's a condition of a heart that says, yes, yes, I believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, and he is Lord. He is Lord over me. He is Lord, not my job, not my career, not my family, not this or that, not the stuff, not my house, not my possessions, nothing else. He is Lord. He is Lord. This is the confession of Christianity from start to finish in the New Testament. He is Lord. I was talking with one man in this faith family this last week who shared with me that for years and years and years and years, he was involved in church. He was leading in variety of different ways in church. And he said, David, it was not until two years ago that I first realized that I had never bowed the knee to the Lordship of Jesus in my life. Not that we know all of what that means. This is a continual process, growing to understand that. But the question is, has there come the point in your life, my life, where we have said, I believe that you have died on the cross and rose from the grave, and I submit my life to you as Lord. And this is the question that determines all of our eternity if Jesus rose from the dead. Will you bow your heads with me? Let me invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And the reason I ask you to do that is I simply want us to have a few moments to reflect on these things, to focus on these things. 
I simply want to ask every single person in this room, whether this is your first time in church, first time in a long time in church, or you're in church every time you can, whether you're a guest, member of this faith family, whoever you are, whatever background is, I would ask you, consider your answer to these questions. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And then second, do you confess the lordship of Jesus? Belief is not a matter of preference or opinion. This is deciding. Am I going to believe this is true? That He is Lord. We're not making Him Lord. We are bowing the knee of our lives and surrender to His Lordship. And if you have never done that, then tonight, in this holy moment, right now, student, adult, senior adult, mom, dad, husband, wives, single adult, whoever you are, I invite you to say yes. Yes, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin and rose from the grave. And I submit to him as the one who has absolute authority in my life. And the Bible says you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. And like that man I mentioned, couple of years ago, this can be the moment at which your eternity is sealed as you trust in Him. Confess Him as Lord.